Good evening. Tonight, the subject of our talk is the question, am I going to get jhana? <laughs> Not that anyone here is wondering that. <clears throat> so, am I going to get jhana? This is something that, of course, you know, the desire for liberation brings us to the practice. And so it's, it's not that this isn't a good question to be wondering about. Um, but there is, there is a way of holding it. So um, since so many folks here have learned the Western mindfulness practice, we thought it was uh, interesting to sort of hold this practice in a way that has really been cultivated with the the Mahasi-based mindfulness practice. And in, in that practice, in an effort really to minimize this striving, there has been a real cultivation of focusing on the practice of, of being mindful versus emphasizing the eight stages of insight, which is kind of interesting because when you think about eight stages of insight, eight jhanas, you know, there's both practices have potential attainments and yet, there has been a way in the West for us to hold that practice without the same kind of striving um, that we see with the jhanas. And so, for better or worse, it's just too late to do this with the jhana practice. Everybody knows about the jhanas. People want to attain them. And this has been one of the main reasons that the practice has become of interest to so many people is there the knowledge that there is this potential for the fruition of the practice in, in these eight or some number of attainments, maybe not all eight, but you know, people might aspire to different, different levels of that. And the answer to the question is that there's, there's just no guarantee. I'm sure everybody knows that. But I think it's important to really hold it in the way we do with the mindfulness practice, that there is a real benefit to doing that practice for the purification that it provides with the mindfulness, just the way that doing the concentration and serenity practice has a benefit in itself, regardless of whether these attainments arise or not. And uh, purification of mind, I mean, we go back to the first night and the, the chart that the Sayadaw went through. And this whole, all of this practice is really called purification of mind. So that's a big part of what we're going to be talking about tonight. What does that really mean, purification of mind? And is that, in, its, in a way, is that its own reward? Because that was really what this practice was designed for. And there's a way of seeing it that the attainments that are available are really just a byproduct. They're a fruit that might arise when purification of mind happens. They aren't actually the purpose. Purification of mind is the purpose of the practice. So there's a way, you know, we'll talk about striving, but this has come up in so many of the interviews. And, um, We think about it sometimes as uh, using the analogy of with this practice, a lot of times people think it's kind of like the lottery. 
you get your ticket and either you win or you lose. And if you get jhana by the end of the retreat, then you won the lottery. And if you didn't, you walk away empty-handed. So that's, that's been, you know, we did a retreat just like you all where we weren't talking to the other yogis, but you could see this kind of lottery mindset kicking in where people either won the lottery or they didn't. And it's not very helpful. So we like to think of it more like the Olympics. When you think about athletes who go to the Olympics, everybody who goes to the Olympics wins. Most of them, the vast, vast, vast majority, may not win a gold or a silver or a bronze medal. But just the fact that they went to the Olympics is its own reward. And so there's a real um, usefulness in holding the practice in that way as purification of mind and not as uh, the lottery where the only benefit that can be um, seen from doing the practice is whether you won the lottery or not. Just being in the game with the Olympics is really a much more useful way of holding the practice. So another, another thing that we do here sometimes, it hasn't come much, up much here, but uh, just as another sort of context, sometimes we hear the question, well, should I just do Vipassana? Because you know the Buddha said that all you need is insight, and it really doesn't matter whether you do Samatha or not. And if, if you actually go through the suttas, you can see the hundreds and hundreds of references that the Buddha made to, to the jhanas. And almost virtually every time he talked about right, right concentration, he talked about the jhanas. So, um, but it is true that he did say that liberation is possible without, uh, without the samatha practice. And so, you know, this is, of course, a personal decision. But I think clearly you're all here. You're all starting out with the Anapanasati. And um, there really is a huge benefit of doing the Samatha practice and then going on to the Vipassana later. And we'll actually talk about this tomorrow night in relationship to the four elements. But ultimately, the question is really, what, what practice are you drawn to and um, what resonates for you? And cultivating the serenity and the concentration for the purification of mind really can be its own reward. And we've worked with people who spent a lot of time on retreat really focusing on the purification of mind and saw huge benefits at the end of that, regardless of whether attainment was a fruit or not. Purification of mind is pretty much guaranteed to be a fruit of this practice if you practice diligently. Looking then at some of the differences between this practice and, and the mindfulness, that we, we talked about this earlier, but again, just to sort of distinguish as you, as you go more deeply into this and start really seeing what is it that's being, first of all, what is it that's being cultivated? And in this practice, we're really cultivating uh, that turning away and that disinterest in our story, in the hindrances, and every time we turn away, we, we cultivate more and more strength to um, just not be distracted by those things. Whereas in the mindfulness practice, we're really cultivating the ability to be with things as they are. 
So uh, even though they're, you know, it's, it's like with skiing, if you were to look at cross-country skiing and downhill skiing, they're both skiing, but what's being cultivated in cross-country might be, you know, muscular strength, and what's being cultivated in downhill might be agility. So I don't know which practice is which, but you can see there's, there's an overlap, but there is still some differences. Another difference when you look at the two practices we really like to think about it as um, that with the jhana practice, we're really penetrating into uh, into that experiential knowing of the unconditioned. So there's there's a real penetrating of the awareness into those realms that are beyond our everyday understanding with the awareness. And this is where what we call the, the thinning of the me becomes more and more important because to do that, there can't really be a sense of me doing it. And this is where that, that receptive energy balanced with the proactive energy really helps with that. Whereas in the, the Vipassana practice, it's more like a permeating where that, that knowing of the ultimate reality is done through the materiality and the mentality that we experience in everyday phenomena. And so this is where, when we think of really what is purification of mind, with the practice that, that we're doing now with the samatha, there's a really deep internal uh, purifying that's happening of the mind stream, of the consciousness here, so inside. And then in the Vipassana, that can be turned outward and cultivated within not only our own bodies, but within everything that we see. So that that ultimate materiality and mentality can really be known everywhere. So, th so this is, you know, they both have a real beauty to them, that the penetrating of our own mind stream and then the permeating of that within everything that we know, both internally and externally, but the purification of mind is really lays a huge foundation for that really deep uprooting in the Vipassana to be possible. The last uh, difference then sort of overall between the two practices is, in our experience, the intensity of it. And I've done a number of very long Vipassana retreats, and those can certainly be extremely intense. So it's not to say that they, they can't be or aren't. But uh, there is a way, because with this practice, we're turning away from our awareness of what's happening and focusing on one object to the exclusion of, of really everything. When we hit a hindrance, there is a different effect. And there's one. Dharma teacher who talks about it being like uh, going with the jhana practice or the concentration practice, being like going downhill on ice skates. And when you hit a hindrance, it's like hitting a big boulder versus with the mindfulness practice, going down a country lane, you're still narrow, but when you hit the boulder, you're gonna have to go around it, but, but there's at least a little bit of room. And so in this practice, when you hit that boulder, it can be really, you know, if you're going downhill on ice skates, you're going to notice that you hit it. And that actually, this is part of the beauty of this practice. 
I mean, the, the first noble truth that suffering is inherent in life is something that, for better or for worse, is a part of the experience of the concentration practice because it really hits. When it hits, it hits strong because there isn't anything else in awareness. You know, and, and we've worked with um, one yogi who talked about how the hindrance sometimes can sneak up on you because when it's weak, the, the, the concentration can turn back to the object. So it isn't until the hindrance is really strong that you actually can see it. And then sometimes it can pull you off of the object in such a way that you might not even be able to find the object. So these are some of the differences. And, and actually, you know, in terms of the intensity, there's a way that, that that can really be helpful because when we see the, the way that we are suffering from holding on to whatever the identification is with, there is the, at least the potential to know that we are holding something painful and that the letting go is actually possible. So what then is purification of mind? And um, I was looking on the internet as we were preparing to come here, and I found a really great quote that I liked very much from Bhikkhu Bodhi. And he says, Wisdom does not arise through chance or random good intentions, but only in a purified mind. Thus, in order for wisdom to come forth, and accomplish the ultimate purification through the eradication of defilements, through Vipassana, we first have to create a space for it by developing a provisional purification of mind, which is indispensable as a foundation for the emergence of all liberative insight. So I think this is a great example of what is it about this practice that's so important to think that insight's going to arise and uproot when it doesn't have a stable and pure container to do that in, it's, it's probably not that likely. So here we're, we're really purifying that, that awareness that then can at some point hopefully go to the Vipassana and um, the final kinds of liberation can be possible. We also have uh, a few a quote we'd like to share from, from a yogi who practiced for very diligently for a long time and actually was a monk for two years doing this practice. And um, when we asked him, how would you define purification of mind? He said, after doing all this intensive practice for so long, that for him, he could see any defilement as the second noble truth and really know, know that very experientially to see through his own delusion and surrender, surrender that defilement because it was really seen clearly because he came down with the ice gates and hit it. There was nothing else to be done. And these could be, um, these could have been hindrances that were had gone on for a long time. And he found the ability to be with himself both in sitting and in life afterwards and to be able to be with whatever came, to be vulnerable to it, and um, to really let go of those things that had maybe been carried for a long time. 
So these are just some different ways of thinking about what, what is actually happening here when we look at this chart and we see that what is really being done with the samatha is purification of mind. It's not just about attainments. I'm going to be speaking this evening about working with hindrances and defilements in the purification of mind. As we undertake this practice, of course, it's a samadhi practice. By placing the attention on the movement of breath at the anabana spot, a stilling naturally occurs, the mind settles, and hindrances and defilement patterns do kick up. Ideally, if the concentration is strong enough and deep enough, one can not turn towards the defilement or the hindrance. It can let it, the, the, uh, the meditator can allow it just to be present and let it naturally lose energy on its own by the simple fact that we don't go to meet it, that we don't go to add energy to it. We stay with our, our meditative object. But sometimes what happens is the hindrance or defilement is so big, it's so large, there's such a big history behind it, that it actually can block the object. The meditator can't find the meditative object because the defilement or the hindrance pattern is just too big. It's just too historical, usually. And when it blocks the object, we have to address it because, of course, you need to be on the object to continue with this practice. We've had a few people, not here, but people who are planning on doing this type of retreat, who have told us that they proposed to do other Buddhist practices to do a kind of bridge building over what Tina talked about last night as the surf zone, that rough area where the hindrances and the defilements still can knock us over. And others talked about strategies where maybe they could parachute behind the surf zone into that nice still ocean water and not have to actually deal with things like striving and hindrances and defilements. And I'm here to tell you that that's not what we're doing here. (laughs) What we're doing here is we're going through the surf zone. We're starting on the beach, and we're going backwards towards the ocean, so we can't see what's coming. And we get hit sometimes, and many times the concentration is stable, and we can move through that wave. We don't need to watch it or analyze it or figure out even what it is. But every so often, we can get knocked down, and we can lose that mask and the regulator, and we can gulp the ocean water. And those are the times we do need to stand up and brush ourselves off, get our gear together, and then resume what we're doing. And the main way to do that is really to be present. To be present with the object, and when the hindrance or defilement takes over the object, we deliberately be present with that hindrance or defilement. We're not doing anything. We're just opening to it with an awareness and being present. And we're allowing it to just unrelax, for the energy to dissipate. We're not adding any story. We're not going back looking for root causes. We're not trying to go find what's the memory of this defilement in my lifetime. You know, we're not doing any of that. We're just being present and we're just allowing. We're not trying to do any kind of surgery. We're not trying to kill the defilements. We're just meeting it with compassion and openness and allowing it to dissolve on its own. And while we're doing that, we're constantly checking, can we get to the object? Is the object available? 
And if the movement of breath is available, we can sense it at the Anapana spot, we return to the object. Our job is done with that defilement or hindrance. One meditator that we worked with had a uh, hindrance arise where, again, he, he or she could not find the meditative object. So by having them just turn and just face it and be open to it, in their words, they discovered that they had been holding a hot coal in their hand and they hadn't even realized it. And simply by being present and open and allowing, they were able to actually open the ha- their hand and drop the coal. Although that's not our goal, it does sometimes happen. And that also is purification of mind. I think of it that in doing this practice, it's like we're, we're clearing a field. We're planting these seeds for uh, the samatha practice, maybe for jhana, uh, hopefully for vipassana. But sometimes in our field, there are stones and stumps that we just can't get around. We can't work around. So we've got to, we've got to work with them to make it to where we can plow the field properly to plant the seeds of samatha. And no talk is complete about working with hindrance and defilements without talking about striving. Because striving is something that affects nearly all of us. And I confess last night that I'm a striver. And I noticed it in one way when I meditate, and that is in my physical posture. And that is that I find myself leaning forward about three or four inches from center. And I often find myself sticking my chin out looking a little bit like a racehorse trying to cross with that, that uh, photo finish, winning by a nose. And when I notice that, I know that striving has entered the picture, even if I'm not yet feeling it. And so in those times, I just physically move back, put myself back in the center position, and maybe even about an inch back, and really inviting the allowing, really inviting that receiving energy that I talked about last night, because when you're on your object, you want to really allow that receiving, uh, the receiving effort to really be available because that really is what draws the practice deeper. We were talking a few weeks ago about what we thought were assets to yogis in this practice. And we won't go through, through all of them, but two of the ones we really saw that were um, very, very valuable. The first was being really transparent and honest with ourselves about what's happening. So this means that if attachment's coming up, we know that attachment's coming up. Um, If one is getting attached to the jhana factors, instead of pretending like that isn't happening, to actually acknowledge to oneself, wow, I'm getting kind of attached to the jhana factors, or maybe you have a personal favorite or whatever. And just the act of being able to do that is really the first step. If we're going through pretending like these things aren't coming up, that isn't really purification of mind. That's delusion. That's another hindrance. So for us, you know, in... in, really seeing when people can be really clear with themselves. You know, it may need to be reported to the teacher, it may not. But 
just to know that this is actually happening and I'm not pretending that things are better than they are. This is a huge, huge asset to the yogi because then you're actually dealing with what's happening. And there's no problem with it. I mean, this is where Stephen was talking about for him, I think one of his assets is really that he found on the retreat was that he didn't have a lot of self-judgment. When he was off the object or whatever, he could just come back. And so this is, I think, one of the real assets that can be cultivated in this is to really be honest with ourselves that when we have a coal in our hand, like this yogi, we have a coal in our hand and we know it and we aren't pretending that it isn't there because we're still suffering. Either way, we're suffering. Juwan just has a layer of pretending on top of it. The second then is the, the ability to let go because sometimes we know we have a call and we still can't let go of it. And it's kind of surprising that that happens. I mean, why would that, why would that actually happen? Um, and of course, if we can't even admit to ourselves that the call's there, it's never, gonna, it's never gonna let go. But I think there is a way sometimes that this is all part of the self-identification, that sometimes whether we are conscious that this is happening or not, there's still an identity even, there can be an identity even in the suffering. And especially something that's been with us for a long time, it can be very much a part of how we define ourselves. especially if, if there's a feeling that something, was, something happened to us that wasn't fair, or maybe if we blame ourselves, really any of the hindrances can be, can be part of this. But um, this can be part of why that coal can be in our hands for decades. And so really the willingness to let go of it, I think, comes actually from the suffering. And this is the genius of the Buddha, because this is, you know, the first noble truth is actually knowing that you have the hot coal, in a way, that there is suffering and I'm experiencing it. And the second one being the origin and the third, that there's, there's an end, and the path is it. And so that really lets us, the suffering itself is what lets us let go. Because at some point, we just don't want the coal anymore. And so, so that's where, you know, this practice, it may be going downhill on ice skates hitting boulders, but you know you hit the boulder, and at some point, um, usually, you, there is a releasing of that that can be really profound. So this is part of, you know, when we talk about purification of mind, what, what is it that's really happening? And it, it is that letting go more and more of all of these places where we have identified and, and that become very obvious, possibly, when we're, when we're sitting. So that's, that's where the, the gentleness and the being able to really be compassionate with ourselves without judgment becomes very important. And this is where striving can become really counterproductive in this path because the striving is, is one more way for us to not be transparent with ourselves because now there's an added layer, I should be getting jhana, you know, back to the title of the talk, I should be getting jhana, I should be farther along, why isn't the nimitta arising? All of these things really make it even harder for us to actually 
be present with what's arising if a hindrance is there because seeing the hindrance feels like, oh, maybe that's going to take me off of the progress towards the attainment. And so there becomes this vicious cycle where because we can't actually see the hindrance, the purification of mind isn't happening. So I'd like to talk for a few minutes about striving because this has come up a lot in the interviews. We hear it a lot when we get emails from people and phone calls and the group that we do. And really striving is just another word for either greed or desire. It's just a hindrance. And because in this practice, as I said at the beginning, everybody knows about the attainments, you know, whereas with the mindfulness practice, there isn't much talk about the attainments. And so people are much more content to just do mindfulness and not be stressing the whole time about whether they're getting attainments or not. They see the value in the mindfulness in and of itself. And so we'd really like you to start orienting towards this practice of seeing the value of the purification of mind as inherent in itself. So two of the reasons, two reasons that we sometimes hear or kind of maybe sense underneath things for people in undertaking the practice, one is the actual attainment itself. Now, you know, there is, of course, wholesome desire, which I'll talk about in a minute, but I think that's a little different than attainment for the sake of attainment um, in the way of, of sort of the notch in the belt kind of attainment. And that can creep in very subtly in terms of you know the striving. Have I gotten there yet? That's a little different than attainment <coughs> for the sake of liberation. So this is, you know, there's, there's just a flavor there that can create a lot of striving that isn't so wholesome, that's really more about the grasping on to getting something. The other, which can come up as, as we get more uh, farther into the practice and the jhana factors start arising, is the desire for bliss states. And we get people who come to our group or who email us, you know, I haven't heard this here, but it is something to be aware of is that some people really just want the bliss states. And, you know, a lot of us came from the 70s and the 80s and the drug cultures and the trips and, you know, the jhanas have been positioned for better or for worse in some places as a way to get some great bliss states and just hang around there. So um, that isn't the purpose of this practice. The purpose is purification of mind. And the bliss states may come. I mean, they will come as the practice progresses. And if there's attachment to that, that's going to get purified. So, you know, it's important, I think, Stephen talked the first night about our intention. And some of these things can be very, maybe not even conscious to ourselves. But when we look at the striving, I think it's important to say, why am I striving? What is really behind the striving? Because I clearly, I want something. I found a quote from Ajahn Chah that I'd, I'd like to share about right, right samadhi and wrong samadhi. And this is a real short one, but he says that right samadhi is like a well-sharpened, a wrong samadhi is like a well-sharpened knife, which we don't bother to put to good use. 
So, you know, he's referring to the fact that really the concentration, there is a whole purification that happens, but in the Buddhist path, it's to be used for the vipassana. That is ultimately what the use is for. And so having this well-sharpened sword that we aren't going to put to use to cut off the defilements and the hindr and uproot, you know, and really do the Buddhist path as it's designed to just have it for its own sake is kind of like having a well-sharpened knife that we don't put to good use. So, you know, we're huge advocates of the Samatha practice and there's also a good use of the practice, which is the purification of mind, as well as then turning this concentration towards the vipassana at the appropriate time, which could be this retreat. It could be 10 years from now. could be the next lifetime. So, you know, we, we've thought about this a lot because there is so much um, emphasis on the attainment in this practice a lot more than probably any other practice I know of in Buddhism. And we just have to deal with that being the tone. And I can tell you, we've seen a lot of suffering because of that striving, a lot. And we really don't want to see you all doing that. And it's really not necessary. So our hope is that as Westerners, the Sangha is ready to really have a maturing of the practice to where we don't have to hide the fact that there are attainments, because we, we can't hide it anyways. Everybody knows about the eight jhanas and so on. But that we can really hold the knowledge of the attainment as an aspiration. And to see it as the fruit while really knowing that the purpose of the practice is purification of mind. That is the purpose. The attainments aren't the purpose in themselves. They're a fruit of the purification of mind happening. In a way, you could say they're a byproduct. So if striving arises, which I would think will for everybody, and, and it's okay. So again, this isn't a good time to now start judging the fact that striving's arising. That's just one more hindrance. So please don't hear that. Um, well, the other thing with striving is usually <laughs> you don't have to go looking for it. Usually it finds you. Yeah, so it's, it's probably going to happen. You know, it happened with us. And when it arises, this is what needs to be purified. There is no parachuting. There is no, we had somebody come to us and say, well, can't I do another method and then just switch over to this method once I'm there? And we were kind of like, no. <laughs> no, that's the parachuting. You know, that isn't purification of mind either. That is the whole point of this practice, purification of mind. So when the striving comes up, don't avoid it. Be honest with yourself about what's happening. Look at how you're suffering as a result of it. This is one of the, one of the defilements in itself. And um, there is actually wholesome desire. I mean, the desire for liberation that brought us all to this path is a very wholesome desire. We don't want to lose that. We want to have that. And it's, it's a wonderful thing that the jhana factors arise and make the, the practice so pleasant. I think it's kind of a self-reinforcing loop that's built right into the practice. 
But when any of these things become attachments, that's where we have to actually start working with the striving in itself and just see it as a hindrance with compassion, without judgment if possible, without ignoring it, and with seeing that we are suffering because of that. And maybe in seeing the suffering, we can actually let go. So there's a quote that I'd like to read from um, Tanisaro Biko, who is um, a Western practitioner based in California and, um, and monk. And he says here that all phenomena, the Buddha once said, are rooted in desire. Even we come from desire. We were reborn into this life because of our desire to be. The only thing not rooted in desire is Nibbana, for it's the end of all phenomena. But the path that takes you to Nibbana is rooted in desire, in skillful desire. The path to liberation pushes the limits of skillful desires to see how far they can go. And the title of this this paper by him is called Pushing the Limits. And I think this practice pushes the limits a lot. This isn't for sissies, you know, because it takes us right up to the edge of this unskillful desire that isn't so wholesome, that's really just a defilement. And yet that same desire is the desire that's moving us to liberation and inspiring us on the path. And it takes a mature practice to really hold that possibility of the fruition while staying right here with the object and without pretending that things are different than they actually are. You know, it's and, really, oh, excuse me. And ironically, I mean, this is where it's, it is very ironic because the appropriate balance of effort without striving is what actually makes the attainment possible. It's like one of those Chinese finger toys, you know? The more, the harder you work, the more you get stuck in it. And when you can finally let go a little bit, you can get out. And so not having the striving is actually what makes the possibility of the fruition at least possible. So it's, it's a paradox that we have to hold to really stay with it and be diligent and use that balanced effort that we talked about yesterday without the grasping and the clinging that isn't so wholesome. I was just going to add, it's, it's just also a reminder. This practice is really an organic practice. By really staying with the object, all of these things will unfold the way they need to. And again, if the concentration is there and we don't move towards and try to give more energy to these defilements and hindrances, a lot of times they're not a problem. But when it does come up and it is a problem, and when striving and the other defilements and hindrances do get in your way, then of course they do need to be addressed so you can go back to the object and continue on. So we'll stop and open it up for questions there.
Uh-huh. And I knew I was striving. I could feel the contraction in my body, and then I could feel the contraction in my mind. So, so um, my object's gone. Mm-hmm. Good. But I'm wondering, um, that loss of the object, doesn't it need a little effort? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you're talking about that balance. That's a very fine balance, um, the effort. Because I, just like you, I can feel myself going like that. Right, right. <laughs> that leaning forward al- right, always, yeah. always reveals us, drivers. Yeah. repeat the question if you want to answer it. So the question for the recording is that she says she's glad we're bringing this up because she was striving and lost the object today. And uh, that what is the right use of effort? Because there needs to be some effort. So how do you balance that without the striving? Is that pretty much the question? Okay. Yeah, the, uh, once again, the, the primary effort the action effort that we're doing is just the vitaka, just being with the object. And when we can do that, then, of course, we then try to shift to the receiving uh, effort. And for the strivers, that's, that's, our big, that's our big piece. Because we know about the action effort. We're not so good about the receiving effort. And there's a kind of a relaxation once we're on the object and it's not, the attention isn't falling away to just open up and allow and just basically receive. There's a kind of a universal energy that start, can start working. And we really can tell as strivers that we don't need to do it, and this power is greater than we are. So there's a way that it's actually working, moving forward. But it also is, it's, a, it's also what you're holding. If you're, you know, for the strivers, of course, we're holding a goal. We, we see something that we want to get to. And we have to really let that go. That's really the big piece, is really the turning away of that and realizing, ah, you look, the mind's gone to first jhana, the mind's gone to nimitta, it wants that. And so there's a way just by recognizing it, we can let go and come back. You know, so, so as a striver, that's really our function, is to really unhook from the goal and, and, and that receiving piece is really, really big. Yeah, so the, the, the effort really is just to, to keep applying the attention to the object. And that can be done with a light touch. You know, you don't need to, like, be one-pointed every second because that's a lot of pressure. All you need to do is just keep coming back again and again and again. And if you keep doing that, then the, the vichara, the continuity, starts to develop. So if, you know, this is where that, that's, we talked about the yin and the yang. You can talk about it as 
um, active and receptive action, action and effort. Yeah. you know so there is a balance of really you know the leaning back a little bit and just letting the the dharma do its work just the way that if you planted a flower if you go out if you put a seed in the ground going out and looking at it every day and stressing at it isn't going to make it grow any faster just do what you need to to tend it and water it and it grows on its own i mean if you go out and look at it maybe you step on it and you actually disturb the growth so there is something in this it can't be made faster than it is but what you can do is to just keep returning to that object without judgment and and have some ease about it you know Yeah, the investigation. Yes, mm -hmm. the, the looking at it. Um, so you just don't look at it. You just. You mean with the with? Are you talking about the breath? Yeah. Yeah, you don't need to know every little detail about it. You don't need to get in there and decide whether it's hot or cool, or whether it's a little bit longer than the last one, or you know, you don't need to go in there and get every detail about it. Whereas with the Vipassana, that is a skillful means to know it at, at a more and more minute level. Yeah, because that is just creating more mentalizing. And actually, you're, you're turning a stable object into a momentary object when you do that. Because every single breath you yeah, breathe throughout right. a day is going to be different. Right. Yeah, you've turned the object yeah. right. Yeah, you've turned a stable object then into a momentary object by doing that. Yeah, so if, when you're on the object, if, if, it's, if the attention is not falling off the object, you don't need to do anything. You can just be present and be open and be allowing and allowing the Dharma to work, as Tina says. Yeah, you it's don't... only when it falls off, when your attention is elsewhere, or when you find you're starting to really microanalyze the breath, then you know you've fallen off. That's another right. way. Yes. Just come back. This is some of the habits that you know are, are skillful means in another practice. In this practice, they actually erode it. So yeah. You're, yeah, that's good that you can see, start to distinguish the difference. And, there. and it's yeah. challenging for everybody who has a lot of experience in meditation to not fall into the habitual and the familiar. We all do that at first. So there has to be a kind of a, a, a judgment about, oh, look what I'm doing here. You know, I'm, I'm not right. doing... Th this particular job I want to do. Yeah, this is why we've been encouraging people to put aside what you know, because it may be very appropriate for other practices and skillful, but here it may actually be counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah, so the, for me, the, when I... Well, for me. Question. Okay, so the question was, how does being meticulous, which I talked about as one of my strengths as a meditator, fit in with what I just said about the investigation? Yeah, so for me, the meticulousness isn't about investigating at more specific levels. It's, it's about the continuity. So, for example, I know at the end of a sit, I'll be really careful to not fall off the object as I'm getting up to then walk which, you know, is something we also do in Vipassana. But it's more the continuity that, for me, I'm meticulous about. Because every time there's one minute or three minutes or five minutes or 20 minutes or whatever, without awareness on the object, the concentration is starting to dissipate in that time. 
So the fewer breaks there are, even if you're moving around, like for me, I don't know if anyone else has this, but maybe I could have great continuity while I'm sitting, and maybe I could down the hallway, but from here to the hallway, it gets a little complicated because I'm doing all these different things. And so it's easy for there to be maybe a gap, and then maybe I don't do it in the hallway. Maybe it's not till the end of the hallway that it comes back, that the awareness of the object. So every time we, we don't drop it and just keep that thread going of the continuity, then you could have, you could have a, a three or four hour period even though you weren't sitting that whole time. Or maybe you only had a break one or two minutes here and there. So you see what I mean? This is the, we talked about the pot with the lid on it. You know, if you take the pot off, the lid off the pot for four or five minutes or 20 minutes, that water's never gonna boil. Whereas if you just look at it really quick, it's, it could still boil pretty, you know, soon. So that's for me, when I talk about the meticulousness, it's about keeping the lid on and not letting it up very much. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a great point, too, because with this practice, the sitting is one of the first places people can get established with the object. And a lot of people can do it in walking. They can go and stand and get the object really in place and then slowly walk and keep the object while they're walking. So the walking and sitting, we, we all can pretty much get. It's really the transitions where we all have trouble. And that's where we just need to slow down. And just when we finish the sitting here, if we know we're going to bow... We make sure we have the object in place, and then we start the bows. Because there's no one saying how quickly the bows have to happen. They need to happen as quickly as you can do while staying on the object. But the object's always first. And then arising, as Tina said, and then walking. And Right, because you think about even mealtime. I mean, if, if there isn't any continuity or it's very sporadic during mealtime, you could go for a long period without with just the concentration dissipating away. So this is where, you know, like I would consider for all of you to think for yourself, where is it easier? Put your energy into the places where it's easier for you and get those established and then look at the gaps in between and how you can just bring a little more mindfulness to those places where you tend to lose the object and make just a little extra effort there without striving, but just a little extra effort to bridge those periods where it drops. And, and mindfulness, again, here means having the, the awareness on, on the object, breath, right. on the movement of breath. Right. So that's always what mindfulness means in this practice. Right. What else? <laughs> okay, so the, so the question was that when he starts meditating, his uh, awareness attention is on the Anapana spot, but during the meditation it seems to drift, drift upwards, and he's concerned if he allows it to drift, he won't get jhana. <laughs> so where does it drift to? 
Is it above the nostrils or is it just at the nostrils? Um, yeah, it's the nostril a little bit above. Is it in the nose? I know this is really personal, but. <laughs> I, I just know it's, it's, off it's up. Well, the spot, okay, so it sounds like maybe we need a little bit of clarification about the spot. We aren't saying there's any particular place in here. It's not like it has to be right in the middle right there. The spot is whatever for you between the lip and the nostrils, including the bottom of the nostrils, is where you feel the sensation. So if you feel it right at the nostrils, that's okay. It doesn't have to be right in the middle here. And for some people, it actually can be a kind of a bit, even larger area at the times. It's yeah. you know, it's just sometimes it's just bigger, and it and sometimes it, it gets smaller and it's right in there, and sometimes it is larger. Yeah. So and if that's how it is. Yeah. If you if if where it feels naturally to you is at the nostril, that is your anapana spot. So don't make it be somewhere that's not as effective for you. As long as it's in that region, it could be, as Stephen said, it could be a bigger part. It could, you know, as the breath gets more subtle, it could get smaller. Well, what happens is that um, I'm still with the breath. It's just that occasionally I can just notice that the, where I feel the physical sensation is now off. You, do you feel the movement of breath where you're pointing to? If it's going in the nostrils. Say, say that again, please. How, how do you know the movement of breath then? How, how are you knowing it? Mm-hmm. That, that's how you know the breath is moving? Is by the patch getting bigger? Yeah, well, it's not, again, the skin isn't really the object here. So if you're knowing the breath in this region, that is your object. So it sounds like you are knowing it in that region. Is that so it's okay to Well, if you can if you can know the breath in that area, then you're good. We we had one right here. Oh. Time to, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, the focusing hard is more effort than is necessary. If you're aware of the object, it doesn't have to be hard. 
And they're, they're, as, the, as the mind coheres, the attention will just be more and more sort of glued to the object without that kind of efforting. So this is where, you know, it sounds like you're starting to feel that balance between the, the, the active effort and the receptive effort. So now bringing in a little of the receptive and a little of the ease would be a good place to maybe back off of that. Hard, if you're saying that, what, what did you call it? Hard effort? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you're calling it hard effort, it, it is. <laughs> you've answered your own question. <clears throat> <so. Right. laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the time really for the ease and relaxation to just yeah. allow, that's again, allowing the Dharma to work there, to just, when, when you're on the object and you know the object, just relax, let it happen. If it's not, if, it's, if you're not falling off the object, then you're okay. Yeah, this is a serenity practice, so just as a reminder there. <laughs> but you've got to work hard for that serenity. <laughs> we had, I think, maybe Robert, and then there was one there and one there. Okay. I wanted to make a comment in relation to what the man said in the back, because I've had that experience myself, where I, I, I think I find a spot, and then... I notice that my mind is drifting up, just the way he described. And um, very sooner or later, generally sooner, the mind will slip off the object because I'm chasing the breath somehow. I don't mean to, but I'm, I'm chasing it. And um, the way that I can find stability is to simply stay at the point at which I perceive the breath in a knowing way at that instant. And there's a qualitative difference in moving with the breath or staying on the spot and knowing the breath. How do you, how do you stay on the spot when the breath is moving away from the spot? Um, I, well, once I realize that I'm moving, then I can, I know what it feels like to stay on the spot. I know where, the, where I've identified the spot. Okay. For me, I think it's different for everyone, but for me, it's the moment I perceive the knowing of the breath mm-hmm. in this general area. And then I would find I'd be chasing it up here, and then as the exhale began, I'd be trying to find my breath up here. I'd lose the breath, so it would get so you know, foggy or something. But if I stay right on the spot, the exhale will actually begin at that same spot. So, so if you're, what you're saying then is that you stay actually on in the territory of the Anapana spot, even if the breath that you, you perceive is moving away from the spot. Mm-hmm. And, by, and by staying on the spot, the breath will come back to the spot yes, in your experience. Okay. Right. So you wait, you wait at the Anapana spot for the breath. Okay. Yeah, Very so nice. that could be a good tip for, for others. And I think to the question earlier, you know, if there isn't a location, there can be, I mean, this is, the spot is a little bit of an anchor. So there can be a, you know, as you were saying, it was going up, you know, there, there could be an ability to drift around if you're just knowing the breath without a spot. So what you're saying is that when you first feel it, that to you is a trigger and it gives you that anchor. Yeah, so that may be helpful for others as well. Thanks for sharing that.
Yes. I, I wanted to share something in regard to that um, question uh, too, because the last retreat, um, in an interview, I um, uh, told Sayadaw that I had felt that the breath moving, it was like kind of the inside of my nostrils, and he said that my mind had moved. And I said, well, can it be here and also be there? And he said, no, you, um, that my mind had moved, that I had to stay right with this spot, and that if I was feeling the sensation up there, then that meant my mind had already moved and I wasn't on the spot. So I um, did the same thing as the gentleman who then responded by um, going to what I what the spot is for me, which is kind of in the air right here, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. returning again to that. Right. Yeah. If it starts going in the body, then that's not it. Yeah. So this goes back to that toll taker. The toll taker always stays wherever the spot is the toll taker. They're staying right where they are and the cars are going by just like the breath goes by. Right. The, the toll taker isn't moving. Yeah. So really finding where, where is that for you is it's very helpful when that becomes clear. And it's also important because there are times in the practice where the breath gets so subtle, we can't actually sense it. We can't feel it at the Anapana spot. And that's why it's important to wait at the Anapana spot patiently for the breath to once again be felt, the movement of breath be felt. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have asked about that, about jobs and what to do. Um, well, slowing down can help. I mean, we're probably not there. Unfortunately, there isn't sort of a magic bullet answer. It is possible to stay with the spot while doing things. So if you can get whatever talking needs to be done this week so that you really know what you're doing and don't have to do that so much, that's good to just get some clarity so that, you know, at least you, you know what it is that you're responsible for. And then, you know, this is part of building that muscle is that may be the highest degree of difficulty for your whole day. So clearly, you know, sitting for most people would be a lot easier than doing something that's more complicated and fast and busy. Um, if you absolutely cannot be on the spot, the next best option is to just be mindfully doing what you're doing and aware of that. I mean, you don't want to, then you are actually getting off your object. But at least if you're off your object, do it in such a way that your awareness is, you are present with your own awareness. But, you know, anytime you're doing that, again, the concentration is waning. So um, slowing down, any Yeah, I've got here? a suggestion. Um, what I found myself doing in that instance was there was a way that I could know the Anapana spot energetically, even if I couldn't feel the breath. It's like Robert was saying, I knew the spot, and there's a way it has uh, an energetic feeling to me. And I know people who have come in reporting have said that as well. So if you can find that energetic spot, even if you're off it, there's still a toehold. You know, you're still marking that space in a way that is providing uh, some minimum concentration development. It certainly isn't as good, 
but it's certainly better than not having anything, not being connected to the spot at all. So you might just investigate when, and I shouldn't use that word, you might, you might uh, pay attention to when you're feeling the movement of breath across the Anapana spot. Really, what does the Anapana spot feel like for you? And notice if when you're off your object, can you, can you feel that? Yeah, and also as, as time goes on, you know, for those who may be thinking, oh, this is something I'm going to have to deal with for months and it's never going to go away and it's always going to be a problem and I can't do anything about it. There is, as the jhana factors increase, we talked about this some last night with the one-pointedness and the continuity throughout the rest of the day. I mean, say that you have continuity throughout the whole rest of the day except you have your yogi job for that one block of time. Well, if you've got continuity the rest of the day, there does come a point where the awareness locks on to the object, and that's really the one-pointedness. And then you can do it without that much effort, and the spot is always there, maybe even with your eyes open. So to, I think part of this is to also not be in your mind kind of holding it in such a way that this is insurmountable. Because if you have the continuity through the rest of the day, hopefully there would, you know, you could, um, that would bridge at some point. And then when the one-pointed list really develops, then the effort isn't quite at the same level. So that could, that could change and evolve over time as well. Well, I, I heard two, two things you said. One, one was, I would call, sloth and torpor, and the other was restlessness. Right. So if those hindrances are coming up, then that would be the skillful means to work with those as hindrances. If, if you can't find the object, they, they need to be engaged. If, if, yeah. you can stay, if you can stay with the object, then what's happening, it sounds like to me, is there's an over-persistence and an under-persistence 
You're trying to find that balance for yourself. And the under, of course, is sloth. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're finding that you can't sit, then that would tell me, because if you're really with the object all the time, the jhana factors are also starting to rise. So, you know, this is where just walking around and doing things all day and not actually sitting and staying with the object, to me there's still something there that is saying that um, is, is in the way of actually the serenity. So, well, if, if you're staying with the object with a lot of continuity, the serenity would be arising. And so if restlessness is arising instead, that's where I would have to call it a hindrance. Mm-hmm. I'm just staying with the object. The tendency is to, is to, is to relax, and, and if there is a tendency, it's, it's toward, more towards uh, uh, hindrance, more towards the soft thing. Okay. Complete. Oh, that means you're relaxing too much. You need, you need to have a little more action, action effort. You need to be a little more present with your awareness on the object because you're relaxing too much and that's why the sloth and torpor are coming up. Yeah, so this is really what you're describing is really feeling that balance of the active energy and the receptive energy. So, you know, this is a good place to really work with the refinement of those and, you know, you're continuing to, to fine-tune those. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Sure. Well, there's... There's a balancing yeah. is what's happening, and, and it's a little off here, a little off there, and you're getting closer and closer. But it's just you have to realize sometimes they, they each get off on each side while you're That's finding that. Right. Yeah, yeah. While, while you're yeah. finding the. And, and by engaging that balancing, there's purification of mind happening. Right. So it's not like purification of mind is waiting until you get the perfect balance, and then it's going to come. The process is is the purification of mind. Exactly. So I think we'll end here. And we'd like to dedicate the merit of today's practice for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.